Hi, welcome to the Romance Me podcast. This is Erica. And I'm Em. And we'd like to say a special hello to our number one and only fan. Happy belated anniversary! Today we'll be discussing Love is a Rogue by Lenora Bell. Lady Beatrice longs for the freedom of spinsterhood when she will finally be allowed to work on her etymological dictionary and enjoy a life of solitude. She just has to get through one more London season as a wallflower before she can begin her life. Unfortunately, she keeps running into Stamford Wright, a handsome carpenter with a rogue's reputation. Although they are divided by social status, Ford and Beatrice become close friends and soon even more. Beatrice now has a different dream. But can she cross the boundary society has set for her in order to be truly free? There will be spoilers beyond this point. But there won't be water, because I forgot my water. So we may have to pause a little bit later so I can get that. (laughs) Let's not stop now. Let's get through this so that we can go to sleep. Can't stop, won't stop. Nope. End or bust. Well, Erica, what is the state of the dictionary? The etymological dictionary. <laughs> well, okay. So we first meet Beatrice in her brother's mansion in Cornwall. Now, Beatrice is a lady. Her brother is the Duke of Thorndon. She's a high status sort of person. But she does not like this. Well, she wants the freedom to be a spinster. Firstly, so she can work on her etymological dictionary. Yeah, I was going to say, like, she wants to be a spinster, but really what she wants to be is free to make her own choices. Yes. And she's just not allowing herself at this point, at the beginning of the story, to think about it in those terms, like that broadly, I think. And so she's kind of narrowed it down, like, well, in, like, with the way society is this is my best chance at being able to live my life the way I want. The thing is, is she says society, but through the course of the story, is it really just kind of sounds like it's her mother. It's partly her mother. It's also, I think, partly due to, like, the pressure she's put on herself, probably from her mother. But a lot of it has been, like, internalized, you know, where she's she's trying to fit into this box. Like, her mother said, here is the box. And Beatrice is like, okay, well, if I fit into the box in this way, maybe I'll be a little more comfortable than if I fit into the box this other way. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, because I don't think she really has any intention of getting in the box. She just doesn't know how to avoid it. She's not willing to stand up for herself to say, um, I'm not getting in the fucking box. Love you. Bye. Well, are, are you thinking of the boxes as marriage? Because I'm thinking of the boxes like societal expectations. No, me too. Okay. Because it seems to me like at the beginning, she just kind of wants to fly under the radar. Like she wants to do the bare minimum so that she'll get left alone. Yeah. She doesn't want to participate in society because society is putting pressures on her. Well, society, her mother, who represents <laughs> society, I guess societal norms and expectations i suppose and so she's trying to ninja her way out of it by just be like you have no daughter (laughs) just forget i exist (laughs) i mean she bargains with her mother 
I don't exactly know how she does it. I can't remember. So that she can go spend the summer working on her etymological dictionary and being left alone. And of course that doesn't work because Carpenter Man makes a lot of noise. Yes. And he is distracting with his rippling biceps and other muscles and things. Yeah, I don't know about the muscles and things, but Carpenter's making lots of noise is a issue that has continued on into the current year. <laughs> present day? I'm confused. From Regency era through present day. <laughs> Man have hammer, make noise. Okay, so Beatrice is working on her etymological dictionary, which she sees as her life's work if she finishes it the hammer is his penis sorry i had to say it (laughs) i'm in a mood if she (laughs) if she finishes her dictionary then she plans to do a study on women authors however she is consistently distracted by stamford wright who is the carpenter who is working to renovate the mansion. And she started out like sending him a note, like, can you please be quieter? And he like sent her a note back that was like, no. And so (laughs) succinct. She's just, yeah, she's just been kind of pissed about it. But she has a list of all of his faults. (laughs) She's not allowing herself to admit it really, but she's very attracted to him. Um, and she's constantly like oogling him from the tower. You know, she's in her tower window watching him work. And he's constantly like, as he lifts things, he's like flexing and stuff. And it very much sounds like he's doing it on purpose. Like he's trying to put on a show. And I think later in the book, you kind of find out that he was doing it on purpose. (laughs) Um, but anyway, at one point later in the day, uh, one of the maids at the house, like, offers Wright some tea, and he's, like, flirting with her, and Beatrice is, like, basically leaning out of the window to, like, <laughs> spy, because he she thinks that he's going to kiss this maid, and her glasses fall off and hit him on the head, and... <laughs> Of course they do. <laughs> well, her spectacles, excuse me. Let's use the term used in the text here. Um, but <laughs> she like freaks out and like crouches under the window. I like that. It was very visual. And he starts climbing up the rose trellis with her spectacles to return them to her. And she's just like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. <laughs> And he just basically climbs into her room and, like, gives her her glasses back. But he puts them on her face for her instead of handing them to her. And they start with this kind of, I guess, like a witty repartee sort of conversation. You know, she's very much like, be gone with you. And he's like, you think I'm hot, don't you? And And she's like... No, you're terrible. (laughs) But but with her eyes, she's like, yeah, I do think you're hot. (laughs) 
Um, she also gives him uh, some lessons in etymology. She's very interested in the origins of words, and she's very much in love with books and words and definitions and those things. And and she is constantly like trying to use a more obscure word rather than a common word because she doesn't like it when words fall out of use. She sees them as probably some sort of endangered species. She's trying to bring them back. I think so. Later, we kind of get into Ford's head a bit. He has this opinion of Beatrice that she's this lofty lady that holds herself apart from everyone because while she's living in the house in Cornwall, She's not gone to visit any of the people in the village or do any of those things that are expected of gentle ladies to do. No socializing. And yet when he speaks with her, he's very attracted to her and he gets the impression that there's something else going on. There's something under the surface of of her properness. (laughs) So right away we start with the kissing. There is no kissing yet. But he teases her about it. Like, oh, well, I guess you've never been properly kissed. Of course, she's like, it's none of your business. Then later, like, they're both obsessing over this kiss that never happened. (laughs) The kiss that could have been, but wasn't. So then we fast forward a few weeks and Beatrice is in London with her mother. This is her fourth season in London. And this is basically her last chance at nabbing a man Um, after this. She passes the goalposts and becomes a bona fide spinster lady and will be allowed to live forever in her brother's mansion because she's already cleared this plan with her brother. She's like, I don't want to get married. I want to live alone in your mansion and work on my dictionary. And her brother's like, well, as long as you're happy, whatever you want, you know, which is very sweet Mm -hmm. of them. But her mother has different plans because her mother very, very much wants Beatrice to marry and marry well. She wants her to marry like an earl, at least. Yeah, I think earl is like the entry level gentry. I don't know how else to put it. (laughs) Starter gentry? I don't know. And every year, Beatrice has hidden behind ferns when she's at dances and refused to talk to people and refused to dress the way that her mother wants her to dress. She describes herself as a wallflower. Like she's got pockets built into her dresses so that she can sneak in books. <laughs> pockets should be in every piece of clothing, I think. Yes. You know, book-sized pockets. At least book-sized. <laughs> the reason she's going along with her mother's machinations this time is because that was part of the bargain she made with her mother. Give me the summer to work on my dictionary in Cornwall, and then I will be your little Barbie doll in London. Her mother starts getting her fitted for a fancy wardrobe, hats, and all these things, and her mother is very, very, very concerned with appearance. And one of the reasons her mother is so concerned with appearance is because Beatrice has a facial palsy on her right side. And so her her right eye and her right side of her mouth kind of droops a little bit. And so her mother is constantly trying to camouflage this because she sees this as a flaw. I think too, the mother feels a bit guilty about it. You find out later the mother is like, I couldn't rescue you from the doctor's instruments that caused this or something like that. It happened when Beatrice was born. Some of the tools the doctor was using, I guess, injured her. And that's why she has the problem with her face. And that sounds so cruel. 
It's not a problem. No one cares except Beatrice's mother. It's it's not a problem, but that's not how they view it. Of course, I, I guess Beatrice has kind of internalized that as well. I don't think she feels like self-conscious about it, but she sees it as a reason she'll never be what her mother wants her to be. Like one of the reasons. She probably does. If I can't live up to this expectation, why try? It's arbitrary. Yeah, and she even got teased in school and stuff too. Uh, there was a, a peer of hers named Millicent who gave her the name of Beastly Beatrice. They kind of teased her because she was so standoffish. But the reason she was so standoffish was because I think she felt like she let her parents down. And so she just lives a very cerebral life. She's very internal. She's very much in her head and when she's not in her head she's in her books or her writing which is being in her head in a different way yeah <laughs> fair enough i think the other you know her peers at the school were like they they perceived this as snobbishness and then they decided to make fun of her physical appearance because of it at least that was my interpretation yeah i think that's fair i i sort of wish she didn't let it get to her but she clearly does. If they were going to call her beastly Beatrice, I wish she would just have been like, grr, and then walked away. Because she seems like such a strong character. Of course, it's hard when you're young to be tough. The tough comes later. There's this part right before she leaves for London, she grabs a book at random off her bookshelf and gives it to Ford. And is like, here, read this. You'll be better if you read. And when he is reading it, because he actually does read, he finds a page torn from Beatrice's diary that details this conversation that she overheard between her mother and father. Yeah, I think her father was kind of a piece of work. Yeah, her father sounds like a real asshole. So whatever, whatever guilt her mother may or may not have felt as a result of Beatrice having the palsy, I think the dad probably made her feel worse. He just seems like that kind of guy. Yeah, and we don't know. It, it never really goes into great detail about her interactions with her father. Um, just like these things that she overheard and then wrote in her diary. Um, we know the father is dead now. We get a sense of who he is because he's one of the reasons that Ford left to go be a sailor. Right. We do know that the, the old Duke... Uh, Beatrice's father was not a very kind man. He wasn't good to his people or anything like that. And we know that in comparison, her brother, the current Duke, is much better. He's kind and fair and all that stuff. So Drew, the current Duke, I don't know. Is there another book that's supposed to come before this one? Because he gets kidnapped before the story starts. And is returned or whatever. I don't know. It resolves because he's back. It's so confusing. I wondered too. And I looked it up. There is a trilogy. Oh. And he is a character in one of those books. And it's his story where he gets together with Mina, which is his wife. Yeah, because he goes missing kind of in this book. And nobody seems to care. Which I think is weird considering he was kidnapped before. Yeah. <laughs> I guess because he has a brother, they've got another spare duke, so they're fine or whatever. <laughs> well, the author does a pretty good job, I think, of bringing us up to speed. But yeah, there are a couple places in this book where you're like, hmm, 
It seems like there was more story here. This is a cameo from a previous book. And yep, apparently it is. So there you go. Um, but this book is the first in a trilogy. And I don't think the second is published yet. Uh, I was wondering if it was going to be a series because of Beatrice's friends. Yes, there's this illusion throughout that her friend Isabel is going to get together with Beatrice's brother, I felt. Yeah. But the thing is, though, is that this author seems to really like writing trilogies. And then the trilogies are connected. I don't know how accurate that is, but that was the impression I got on uh, Goodreads when I stalked her bibliography. It's probably accurate. I didn't take the time to look. I will trust what you say. Oh, did I say um, that Ford is supposed to be shipping out also? So he's... You did not say. You are saying it now. Once he finishes his job in Cornwall, he's going to go to London and meet up with his friend Griff and ship out as a ship's carpenter a few weeks from that point. Yeah, he's really hoping that the duke will come back before he has to leave because he has some important news to tell him so that it will spare his father from being accused of stealing money. Yes, um, Ford has discovered that um, one of the duke's employees, I guess. Yeah, some sort of, like a manager. <laughs> one of the duke's men has been embezzling from the duke yeah, Ford is really concerned that this will come back on him and then cast doubt on the reputation of his father, who whose livelihood is as the Duke's carpenter. Like, he's employed by the Duke. Dun, dun, dun. Should we talk a little bit about uh, Ford's backstory? Yeah, I think now is a good time to talk about it. Okay, so Ford, he seems like one of those guys who's just like, the man's getting me down, but I won't let him. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's kind of the impression I got from him. His mother was of a slightly higher social status than his father. Um, she wasn't aristocracy, but she was, uh, you know, the daughter of a wealthy merchant or something like that. And when she fell in love with, um, Ford's father, who's a carpenter and eloped, <laughs> she got disowned by Ford's grandfather this basically, you know, I think broke her heart. She ended up uh, naming Ford after the grandfather. Like, Stamford is the grandfather's middle name. And she tries multiple times to, like, contact the grandfather. The grandfather puts her off. And then they had a, a year when they were very, very poor. And she goes to the grandfather for money. And he basically is like, here, take the money, but then I never want to see you again. Ford was present for this conversation because he was eight years old and he was brought there to meet the grandfather that time. Yeah, Ford really internalizes his mother's struggle or I don't know what else you would call it, like reduced circumstances or whatever. And I think he feels partly to blame because she was pregnant out of wedlock. So he's, I think he sees all of the, the trials that his mom has to go through it's like, oh, well, this is because of me. And then he turns really angry at the aristocracy, which is why he and his father become stalemated and he leaves then to go be a sailor. And then, I don't know, he must be gone for a while because he left when he was in his young teens, like what, 13? And he's presumably older than that now. And he's been a sailor all of that time, I think, maybe. But he's only been in one conflict 
and that was in the Mediterranean. As a result, he got severe PTSD. Like, he really doesn't want to go back on a ship, but I guess he's going to. I think he feels like he has to. It's a little peculiar because he just... He says these things like, I just always survive, but then he only cites the one conflict. So I'm like, what else have you survived? Please explain. Not that that's not sufficient. It's just (laughs) the way it's said makes me think it's more. More than one survival instance. I think Ford feels like he's in a box as well, or he has a box that he's supposed to fit into. And like Beatrice, he does not want to fit into this box. You know, he's trying to find a way where it can be comfortable for him. They are not cats. (laughs) (laughs) The way he's found is like, well, I don't want to be in the same circumstances as my father. So I'll take the profession that I learned, use it as a ship's carpenter, which I think is fine. Except now he's turned off of it because of the skirmish he was in. Yeah, he doesn't think he can repair the ships and keep them afloat and essentially save lives that way. Because, of course, if the ship sinks, (laughs) not so much with the life-saving. Right. And he also, he's very aware of his social standing. Like, he has this internal monologue. At varying parts of the story, I, I thought it was very funny. But at some parts of the story, it's very, it's a bit sad because it's like, no, stay away from them. Don't talk to those people. You are beneath them. (laughs) He's very aware of his social standing and he doesn't necessarily think it's fair or right or anything like that. But he's like, well, life will be easier for me if I just let it be the way it is. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons that while he is very attracted to Beatrice and he was like flirting with her and stuff, talking about kissing her and fantasizing about kissing her like as far as he's concerned at this point in the story that's as far as it could ever possibly go because she's the sister of a duke she's a lady and he's a he's a commoner he's a carpenter and he's very aware of the idea of history repeating itself because his mother was in a more privileged station married his father and got ostracized from her family and he does not want to do that to anyone And I think he's also kind of turned off of the idea of love in general as well, because he sees like while his parents had a love match, he sees it as kind of a curse because all he can see at this point is they lived in poverty (laughs) and (laughs) were oppressed. (laughs) You know, he doesn't see the good things. Was happiness going on and he just had blinders on? That's a good question. I think that he... He is very much up in his own head about this kind of stuff. Like he's got, you know, a couple examples and he's decided, okay, well, this is how the world works. And he's not looking for further evidence at that point, I suppose. And I mean, being on a ship, there would be a ranking system as well. So that probably added to his sense of place so to speak, or where he thought his place was. Yeah, probably. Although on a, on a ship, I think as a carpenter, he would have an elevated status compared to some. And it sounded like maybe he was about to become an officer, either this time when he was going out to sea or sometime soon thereafter. Yeah, he's he's progressed up the chain of command and he's at a higher standing than he was when he began, of course, at least as far as uh, being on a ship goes, not so much as being in London. Beatrice meets with her friends when she gets to London. We find out more about her group that she's formed with her friends. It's called the Mayfair Ladies Knitting League. And (laughs) I think only one member of the group knows (laughs) how to knit. It's actually a secret ladies society to 
um, celebrate and help women who want to have accomplishments that don't necessarily conform to the gender roles that are set for them. Each of the women in her group that we learn about has you know, a different talent or a different thing that they're working on. Like Beatrice is working on her etymological dictionary. Her friend uh, Viola is a musician and her father is going, is a, is a composer who's going deaf and she's finishing her father's symphonies and still publishing them in his name. But they're her symphonies, I guess. And then her friend... Isabel is interested in law and she's going to law school with her brother's identity because her brother's an invalid. And so she's able to go undercover as a man and go to law (laughs) school. (laughs) But like each of the ladies that we learn about, you know, have a thing like that. I think Viola and Isabel are probably the primary two friends that we really see Beatrice interact with. Yeah, because there is Henrietta who has the wine, but I think she's just in the one scene. And then they have the recruit. Yeah, there's a couple times that you see them recruiting other ladies, like when they're at dances and things like that. They're like looking at the ladies (laughs) over by the wall, you know, the wallflowers. They're like, hmm, she looks like she might be a good candidate for our group, you know, and there's one they even recruit and they're like, oh, yeah, you should join our knitting league. And she's like, I don't know how to knit. And they're like, oh, that won't be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) but when um beatrice is hanging out with her friends she's telling them about ford about how she had like this imaginary kiss and it's just stuck in her head her friends are like remember beatrice when things happen in your head they don't happen in real life necessarily you shouldn't feel bad about things that happen in your head (laughs) (laughs) and then speak of the devil but Ford is at her house in London because he's still trying to get a hold of her brother, the Duke, to let him know about this embezzlement. The Duke isn't there. Uh, Beatrice's mother is out. The only person who's available to see him is Beatrice. And so she, at the behest of her friends, lets him in to come talk to them. (laughs) There's this funny part. So when he comes in, he sees her and she's dressed completely differently from how she was in Cornwall and her hair's all done in this crazy way and all this stuff kind of to hide again her palsy. He said, he's like, what have you done to your hair? And she's like, this is the latest fashion. And he says, it doesn't suit you. And Beatrice says, why, thank you so much. What a pretty compliment. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I really enjoy that. I mean, that's a, that's one example, but I really enjoy um, how Beatrice uses society's rules to Mm -hmm. be snide. (laughs) It's kind of Jane Austen-esque to me. Uh, Just like, you know, the layers upon layers, like you can say one thing, but being another. Anyway, so Ford says, you know, well, this hair, it doesn't look like you. It doesn't look like the the person I met in Cornwall. And she replies, that lady isn't allowed to live in London. Ford is just like, um, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, well, I'm sure all the, all the men in in London love it. And she's like, don't assume that I want that. And And he's like, isn't that the usual goal for young ladies? And she says, you presume to know the goals of young ladies. (laughs) (laughs) and i love this line she uses it several times throughout the book with different people (laughs) 
And and he says one generally assumes that all of the dancing and opera going and folderol that happens in London this time of year is for the sole purpose of matrimonial arrangements. And Beatrice says, I thank you not to assume that all young ladies wish to be married. And he says, if you say so, it must be true. Young ladies can have other goals. And Beatrice says, oh, we can, can we? How good of you to give us permission. <laughs> so sassy. So they're having, again, this this uh, push-pull sort of conversation. It's kind of flirtatious and her friends pick up on the flirtatiousness of it, I think. They kind of realize that Beatrice likes this guy. And while Beatrice has this idea that she'll be turning her back on the on the knitting league if she doesn't become a spinster and write her etymological dictionary and do nothing else, she, she kind of feels like love is beneath her or she should be better than it or not wanted or whatever. But I don't think her friends have that same impression. I think that they all have just kind of noticed or accepted that if they want to be allowed to pursue their goals, then they can't necessarily get married because once they're married, then they have to live at the will of their husband. Yes. Which is where the Jane Austen books end. <laughs> yep, sadly. Well, that's where a lot of romance-related books end. It's telling. Oh, so also Beatrice has learned that she uh, inherited a bookstore. Apparently, she had an estranged aunt who, surprise, surprise, also married below her station and was ostracized from her <laughs> family because she married for love. Yeah, she's a paternal aunt. This, this seems <laughs> to be a theme. But anyway, this, this estranged aunt has died and left Beatrice her bookshop, which had been her husband's that the husband had left to her. And it's pretty unusual for a lady, a woman to own anything really <laughs> during this time period, especially property though. And Beatrice's mom, when she mentions it to Beatrice is like, yeah, I'm gonna have, you know, our lawyer sell it. Don't worry about it. And Beatrice is like, no, 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 no. I have to go see the books first. I have to make sure that I can have the books at least. Because again, Beatrice at this point, she's she's still, she's like, okay, well, she's setting modest goals for herself. You know, she has this goal to write her dictionary. She has this goal to live alone and be a cat lady so that, you know, she doesn't have to do what anyone else wants. She has this goal to take the books from the bookstore instead of the bookstore itself. But she tells her friends about this. And so since since Ford is there and they all know he's a carpenter, her friends are like, oh, well, why don't you come with us to visit the bookshop and you can see how damaged it is? You know, because it's Beatrice heard it was in disrepair. And so maybe uh, Ford as a carpenter will be able to let them know and do an actual inspection and assess the property. And when they get to the bookshop, I think this is where things change, really. Like, this is this is a turning point in the story. This bookshop is a magical place in the story. In a lot of ways, it's where the story found more of its legs. I think so, too. I think that up until this point, I was like, and? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I like a good slow burn <laughs> story, but this one, it's like there was no conflict. Well, I mean, there's the conflict of Beatrice. Beatrice and her mother, I suppose. Yeah, it, but you have to have this sort of like like stretching out tension, you know, where it's just pulling and pulling and pulling or something to sort of make the slow burn have some sort of an effect. 
and it wasn't there. So finally, when they get to the bookstore, it's like, oh, okay, something's happening now. Yeah. And another thing that I really liked about the bookstore is I feel like it's a bit like the castle in, mm. in Beauty mm-hmm. and the Beast. And I feel like there's like this reference. Um, I don't know. Did you notice it? Because when, when they get there, it's locked and Ford uh, picks the lock and lets them all in. And then they're accosted by the two servants who oh, work yeah. there. The housekeeper is Mrs. Kettle. Right. And the man of all trade is Coggins. Yeah. And when they meet her, he's brandishing a candlestick. Oh, I didn't catch that. And I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, Kettle, yep. Pot, Coggins, Cogsworth. The candlestick. <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch any of that. I was very excited. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like maybe I feel like it is on purpose because it's it's almost like a it's almost like that moment. I think this moment in the story, like when the bookstore enters the plot, it's almost like the scene in um, The Wizard of Oz where it turns from black and white yeah. into color. Like all of a sudden, Beatrice sees that there's more. Like, she could have more. Yeah. Possibly. I agree. So, among the other things that Beatrice learns when she's at this bookstore that actually is in some disrepair is that there's a secret room that has um, pornographic books in it. <laughs> yes. And I guess the bookstore has a has a reputation for some kind of scandal, but no one really knows much about it. And apparently this is what the scandal is. Yeah, well, the bookshop had to make a living. Because after the the aunt's husband, Mr. Castle, yeah, Mr. Castle, when he passed away, they had a hard time generating an income, probably because, you know, woman bookstore owner, how scandalous. That's probably, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it was supposed to be. I mean, it's not said that that's what it is. They had to branch out with what they were selling. But while they're there, Beatrice decides that she wants to keep the bookstore. She wants it to get fixed up and she's going to give it to the Knitting League as a clubhouse for women because there's so many, you know, gentlemen's clubs, but there's no ladies clubs and she wants to have that, Yeah, which I think is good. I think that's awesome. It's a great idea. So her friends leave, the staff leave, and Beatrice is alone with Ford. They start talking about kissing again. They almost do. And then someone comes in and it turns out it is a older gentleman named Richard Stamford Foxton, who is actually Ford's grandfather. But Foxton has been in negotiations to buy the bookstore. Yes, because he has plans. Yeah, he probably would have purchased it too if Beatrice hadn't been able to go visit it and decide that she wanted to keep it. Because her mother basically had it sold already. Like no official paperwork or anything. No agreement had been made. But it was kind of, you know, at that point. Foxton is telling Beatrice, yes, this is my building. And Beatrice is like, no, this is my store. I own it. And I don't wish to sell. Foxton wants to buy the bookstore. And 
he owns the properties on either side and he wants to turn like this area into a factory instead. I think at this point he's trying to be kind of solicitous in a bit of a slimy way to Beatrice. Oh well you may not realize this but this building is not in very good repair and it'll be costly or whatever and Ford is like no it it should be fine <laughs> and then <laughs> and then um Beatrice is like well I want you know I'm, I'm worried about the books and he's like oh I'll I'll pay to have them delivered to wherever you want them to go you know aren't you worried more about the London season the social season you probably don't need to trouble yourself here and this is where Beatrice again uses the line do you presume to know the goals of young ladies <laughs> and she's just she's just so great um foxton even like points out well don't you know there's like the the porno books in the next room and beatrice is like yes i know all about that <laughs> that does not deter me i don't have a problem with it <laughs> and while she's standing up to foxton ford is having all these wonderful thoughts he's like oh my goodness she's amazing and i want to help her i will do anything i can to to help her achieve her goals and in the process screw over my grandpa <laughs> <laughs> so he has a bit of an ulterior motive but i don't think it's very ulterior no i mean on the scale it's not very ulterior <laughs> <laughs> when um when Foxton leaves, he kind of has like this threat, like, well, you'll never be able to find anyone to fix this place for you because I'm a powerful man and I will make sure no one will want to be hired for this. Ford basically volunteers to fix it for her. And she's like, no, I don't need you to rescue me. I don't need your help. You can go do your thing. Aren't you leaving soon? Aren't you leaving London? Like she's ready for him to leave. I think because she's afraid because she likes him too well. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but she's like, I can't hire you. And he's like, well, if you change your mind, this is where you can find me. Meanwhile, Beatrice makes a scene every time she goes out with her with her mother out socially. You know, they go to a dance and she hides or she accidentally spills on her on her dress or whatever. And her mother is just like, are you trying to humiliate me? Yes. Yes, I am. Which she is actually. Yeah, but she's like, I'm following all your rules. I'm not reading books. I'm not using arcane words. I've danced with everyone you wanted me to dance with. I haven't hid around at the edges of the ballroom. And her mom's like, yeah, you followed the word of the rules, but not the spirit of the rules. <laughs> Beatrice is like, oh, well, I just can't. I'm so distracted by all those books at the bookstore. <laughs> See, I'm surprised here why the mother at that point is like, oh, well, then let's just remove the distraction. Yeah, well, her mother, I think, is used to bargaining with Beatrice. I think this is a thing. Mm, probably. It, it was a thing when she stayed in Cornwall, and now it's a thing here. So I'm kind of thinking it's a thing. But her mother's like, yeah, you want to spend time in that bookshop, don't you? And Beatrice is like, yeah, I do. I want to spend like two hours whenever I can a day in the bookshop. And I promise to be the most sweet-tempered and congenial lady in the room on every social call, at every ball, soiree, and music hall. And her mom's like, yeah, sure. And she's like, try me, mama. See how I sparkle. See how proud I make you. Which is sad. <laughs> <laughs> like, because... For the rest of 
like for the majority of the rest of the book, Beatrice pretends to be like this other person whenever she's at a social event and everybody loves her when she's this other person, you know, and her mother is so proud of her and she keeps getting like all these invitations to other social events and she's even snagged the attention of the Earl of Mayhew, which is her mother's target. Like her mother's like, yep, that's the one you need to snag. He's the one you need a proposal from. He's essentially the Gaston. Although she's more the, the beast than Belle. Yeah, I guess so, huh? She's the one with the library. She's the one who has the facial palsy that makes everyone think that she looks, you know, beastly. She's also the one that behaves badly, repeatedly, for her own ends. And I'm not... Yeah, she does. She She's subversive. Yeah, I'm not saying that that is bad at all. I'm just saying that the behaviors between herself and the Beast character from Beauty and the Beast are similar in that way. Yeah, no, I agree um, to to an extent because she... Which makes Ford Belle. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of is because he's so pretty. He is pretty. He's repeatedly referred to for his attractiveness. And he wants adventure in the great wide open. It just happens to be the sea. Yeah, the great wide somewhere. (laughs) Okay, so Beatrice has made this deal with her mom. Ford, meanwhile, is musing with his friends, kind of about the action he saw back in Greece, kind of about Beatrice. He's telling Griff who's his friend and also his potential employer, that he may actually not take the job and work for Beatrice instead to renovate the bookstore. And Griff is like, hmm, gee, I wonder why you want to do that. Ford is very much in denial. Like he, the only reason that he can see or that he allows himself to see is that, well, I'll get paid good money. I'll be able to stick it to the man who happens to be my grandfather and I'll help her achieve her dreams. Like there's no room for emotions there really. And while he's talking to Griff, uh, Beatrice does show up and it turns out she wasn't able to find anyone else to repair or renovate the bookstore and so she does hire him yes because foxton has made sure that no carpenter will come anywhere near her wood yes (laughs) ford asks for a very high salary like a crazy high salary and beatrice is just like okay because of course to her it's not crazy high well it's not crazy high but she also i kind of doubt she has any real good concept of money either Yeah, I doubt she does. And not that she's not smart, but she doesn't really have very many opportunities to be purchasing things on her own and thinking about budgets and such. Yeah, well, she doesn't have to. She's supported by her brother, the Duke. I mean, who would think and worry about money if they didn't have to? She asks Ford to move in temporarily to the bookshop to guard it in case Foxton tries to do anything devious while they're uh, renovating it. And he agrees. He swears to Beatrice that he'll do whatever it takes to keep Foxton from stealing the bookshop from her. And then he compares that to when he swore to his mother he'd never reveal his blood connection to Foxton. That's the reason he's not telling Beatrice. So I think he probably, at this point, if he hadn't promised his mom he would never tell anyone, he probably would have told Beatrice at this point. Yeah, I think he would have. I don't think this was so much a secret for him. I think it was just like, well, I promised my mom I wouldn't tell anyone. Do you think it's also because he trusts Beatrice wouldn't tell anybody else? I think that if he did tell Beatrice that she wouldn't, 
tell anyone. I think that that's fair. I think he probably does think that. Now that you brought up the Beauty and the Beast thing, I'm seeing all of these other parallels. <laughs> I fully didn't notice it. That was my clap squeal moment. <laughs> yeah, I fully didn't notice it. Now I'm like, oh, and then this, and then this. <laughs> I think the naughty book that they first read ha- has like a maid or whatever, which made me think of the feather duster that Lumiere is into. Yeah. Um. So a little while later, uh, Ford's doing his construction stuff at the bookstore and Beatrice shows up basically to escape from her mother the pressures of of being popular because now she is popular yes she tells Ford that that night she's going to the opera and she's going to meet with the Earl of Mayhew there and she's just done like she's finished with the whole thing because apparently Mayhew just talks about himself and he's just narcissistic and the whole time she's pretending to be this other person so she's just simpering at him and hanging on every word and she's just really upset ford's response to this is here wield the sledgehammer and help me break down this wall (laughs) (laughs) but again this is another turning point for beatrice because she's talking to this guy the guy treats her i mean ford treats her like like a human being he doesn't treat her like like a lady he doesn't treat her like a woman. He treats her like a, a person, the same as him. Like they're both people. Mm-hmm. And so he shows her how to use the sledgehammer and she just goes crazy with it. And she's just all about it. And while she's wielding the sledgehammer, she's like breaking down mental walls too, I think. She's like, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about hitting like a lady. I don't care about this or that. I think it's a metaphorical scene. I agree. And after she's done breaking down the wall, he grabs her and she turns around and tries to kiss him and gets his nose. (laughs) Oops. And he's like, "Um, were you trying to kiss me? And she's like, I got carried away. And, And then he kisses her. And then he says to her, because he has to, now that you've been properly kissed, you'll be forced to concede that kisses are far more scintillating than archaic words. And so Beatrice is like, oh, was he just trying to prove his point from earlier? She's not allowing herself to think that he could possibly be attracted to her, which is just crazy. Of course not. How could anyone be attracted to beastly Beatrice? You know, there's this thing that happens and and it happens at this point, too. Her spectacles are constantly like on and off and on the shelf in someone's hand. It's driving me crazy. Like if I needed spectacles to see the way Beatrice appears to because she says, you know, things are fuzzy when she doesn't have them. I would be a little worried about them just being everywhere willy nilly. Yeah. Like even at the balls that she goes to, her mother like doesn't let her wear them, which is just terrible. Yeah, that's quite cruel, actually. Here, let me leave you slightly blind. Now, go have fun, dear. You don't need to see. A man is supposed to guide you. So later, Beatrice leaves. Ford goes out and he's talking to Griff again. They're drinking. He's telling him about how Beatrice, you know, used a sledgehammer and all this. And she's going to meet up with Mayhew later. And Griff is just like, hmm, it sounds like you're falling in love with her or whatever. And Ford is like, love is a choice. There's no falling happening here. And Griff is just like, sure. Uh-huh. I believe <laughs> If you say you. so. But Griff also gives Ford some information 
about Mayhew, which is that Mayhew apparently raped a maid and she got pregnant and he promised to, I don't know if it was marry her, just keep her as a mistress or whatever, but basically support her and then reneged on that agreement and she ended up having to go live in the country. That dude's a peach. And this just sets Ford off and he's like, well, then I guess I'm going to the opera because I can't let Beatrice be alone with this guy. What if he proposes to her and she accepts? Because I don't think at this point, Ford doesn't doesn't realize that Beatrice plans to deny any proposals. She plans to remain unmarried. Yeah, it's almost a little insulting, too, which Beatrice will point that out later to him. You really think I would just say yes to his proposal? Like, have you no faith in my intellect at all to understand that, you know, he is unworthy of me? Thanks for showing up to protect my honor. Yeah, because he does. He shows up at the at the opera and runs into one of Beatrice's friends who calms him down a bit. And she's like, you can't just go storm up there. You're going to cause a huge scene and it'll be a big problem. Hide down here and I'll get Beatrice to come talk to you. And so when Beatrice comes to talk to him, she assumes at first that he's jealous. But he says... Like you said, he's not worthy of you. And she says, I don't intend to accept his proposal. I'm not going to accept any proposals. And then he returns with, find a gentleman who values your intellect and wants to see you succeed at your dictionary. And she says, don't make me laugh. Marriages in my set are usually matches of convenience, which is just sad. He's trying to tell her, like, you could you could choose a different road. You could go a different way. And she's like, no, I've planned out my life. I'm going to be a spinster in Cornwall and write my dictionary. (laughs) And finally, she does. Like you said, she says, I'm not your rehabilitation project. You can't fix me. I'm not going to marry anyone. You don't have to protect me. You don't have to rescue me. And he's like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I just worry that Mayhew will hurt you. Yeah. And doesn't he also say, like, never be alone with him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he actually tells her what he heard about Mayhew, which I was like, bravo. You know, this never happens in uh, Regency books. <laughs> you know, telling the lady. That... Well, the topics are so scandalous. Yeah. But he tells her that Mayhew, you know, raped someone and all this. And he's like, just please don't ever be alone with him. And so she promises to never be alone with him. And then they kiss and they kind of have a makeout session in the closet until she has to leave and go back up to the opera later i don't know if it's like a the next day or a couple days later but she shows up at the bookstore to help him uh, pull up the floorboards and they have a really good day pulling up floorboards and while they're doing this they're discussing like this imaginary desert island You know, it's kind of like this fantasy land where if they were stranded on a desert island together, then they wouldn't have to worry about anyone else. Yes, because everyone else is always the problem. (laughs) Well, I guess it is when it's societal. (laughs) Societal norms. I think in this case, it makes sense for them to be dreaming of going (laughs) off to a desert island. But he gets hurt. Um, and so she tries to to clean his wound and dress his wound and everything. and, And he's like, stop it it's fine it's just a scratch and she says so you're allowed to come charging into the opera house and tell me i can't marry mayhew but i'm not allowed to care for your injury and he says you're not allowed to care full stop and she says you can't stop me and so there's this 
this push-pull here because Beatrice at this point, I think, she does care about him. She's very open about it. She realizes he cares about her, but he is like, no, I cannot let history repeat itself. I can't, you know, take her away from her family. This can't be anything. This can't be this can't go anywhere. No, but we can't. I think Beatrice at this point too feels like it can't go anywhere, but at the same time, she's living in the moment for once. I don't think she's thinking about the future so much, either because she already has it planned out and doesn't see anything currently that would change that. Yeah, and she's she's worried about the feelings she's developing. Like She likes all the physical stuff, um, she's really enjoying it and she's very attracted to him and she likes him a lot, but she's she's developing feelings and she doesn't want to. So she's drinking with her friends. As we do in life. As, as some people do. And. <laughs> oh, don't say some people like you. And know. they discuss Ford. <laughs> <laughs> she's, you know, she's discussing Ford with her friends and then. At the end of the night, instead of going home, she goes to the bookshop and she figures, well, Ford is probably out at the bar. While he's gone, I'm going to go into the bedroom where he's staying and search for this hidden manuscript that is supposed to be a thing that my aunt had. Yes. Isn't it like the first copy of a book written by a woman or something like that? A British woman? Yeah, in English or something like that. But Ford isn't at the bar. Ford is laying in bed reading one of the naughty novels. Oh. And Beatrice comes in and she's she's a bit drunk. He's like, oh no. And he's like, he puts the book down over his crotch. <laughs> this whole scene is hilarious. She's she's like, I'm not here for you. I'm here for ancient manuscripts. <laughs> oh, is that what we're calling it now? <laughs> And he's just like, fine, whatever, look if you have to. And she's all, well, get up and help me move this desk. And he's like, um, I can't right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's like leaning over the desk and her butt's like sticking in the air. And he's just like, this is not helping my situation. Oh, poor buddy. <laughs> I know. He's just awkward about it. I think he's worried about scandalizing her. Yeah. Probably. But he shouldn't be because then she sees that he has a book and she's like, oh, what is that? She opens it up and um, <laughs> she's like, oh, oh, is this something that is done? <laughs> and in Ford's head, it's like, don't ask her what? Don't do it, Ford. <laughs> and he asks her, is what done? <laughs> And she's like, he's underneath her skirts. He's kissing her in unexpected places. <laughs> and she's like, maybe I should include some of these words in my dictionary. It might sell better. <laughs> and then she's like, well, I've learned some things can't be learned from books. They must be learned by practical application. And she basically is like, so Ford, you want to show me how this happens here? And so he goes down on her. He makes sure that she gives consent, though. She, he's like, if you want me to stop, all you have to do is say so. And she's like, I'm in control. I get it. Which is really cool. Yeah, because she's drunk on Henrietta's wine. So he goes down on her. They do some other stuff. And kind of proceed to third, you know, all, all the bases, but not home. They have, like, a moment where they talk about, like, their past and their dreams and all this. 
when Beatrice leaves, she kind of has like this thought in her head, like, well, maybe, maybe it could work out. Yeah, she's suddenly feeling way more optimistic about the situation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, an orgasm will do that for you. But the next day she wakes up and she's a bit hungover and she's just, she's mad at herself for having feelings and for being drunk and telling Ford things. You know, she's not really upset about like the physical stuff they did, um, but she tells her mom that she's sick and wants to stay home. <laughs> and then the second her mom leaves, she runs off to the bookshop again foxton shows up and says so while you've been doing all these repairs it turns out that mr castle actually had a male heir in his family tree that will come forward and claim the property and beatrice is just like fine you know this can get legal whatever let's bring it to the courts man yeah she calls him on it she doesn't <laughs> back down yeah which is great Oh, oh, and there's this other part, too, where, you know, Foxen's like, I doubt your mother approves of this. And Beatrice says, well, she doesn't approve, but my brother, the Duke, has always been very generous to me. Do you want to pit yourself against a Duke, Mr. Foxton? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just the best. So after Foxton leaves, she and Ford discuss it and kind of decide that maybe they should go talk to this potential heir and see how legitimate this claim actually is and nothing ever really comes of this because it turns out that the heir is like something foxton drummed up to get beatrice to sell of course i kind of wish something that something actually did come of it like let the stakes raise or something you know his claim still didn't have to be legitimate but i sort of almost wished it had gotten legal or something increase some tension I think it would have been difficult to do in this story because there's a lot of different um, external factors going on. There's not only like the stuff with Foxton, but there's all the social stuff with her mom. And then there's the stuff with the bookstore just in general, like repairing it, the lost manuscript. Yeah, but you don't necessarily have to spend all the time on some of this, but it just felt like it was just throw a lot of things in there to keep them doing things. <laughs> I guess I think the biggest threat in a Regency romance is the threat of of a woman being ruined. Any other threat in a Regency romance, I think, is secondary for the most part. With Beatrice, it's different because she doesn't give a crap about being ruined. Everybody else cares, but she doesn't. And that would be the person that I would be worried about who would care. Because she doesn't care. She's okay with it. Therefore, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I think too, though, that in a lot of Regency books, the repercussions for being ruined sound a lot more dire. And in this book, it's not very clear what the repercussions would be. No, I mean, there's no there's no sense of any actual threat. If she cared about being ruined, then then I would care, you know, like if it mattered to her. Yeah, well, not only that, but like, for example, in um, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, where the one sister gets, Lydia. you know, <laughs> ruined. Yeah, and there's the scandal and Darcy fixes it. Yes. He saves the family's reputation, basically. It's, it's a very big deal in that book because it's very clear the impact that that would have had on everyone mm -hmm. involved all the bennett sisters in the family whereas in this book we don't really know like okay well i guess the mom won't get to go to parties anymore oh well yeah exactly so the threat isn't as as dire as it could be i agree okay so moving on so while while she's at the bookshop 
where she's not supposed to be. Her mom shows up at the bookshop. Ford is like, here, hide under the desk. (laughs) And the mom basically kidnaps Ford. She's like, okay, well, I need a carpenter to come help me with the stuff for the costume ball. You get to come help me for the day. I'm sure it'll be fine. And so they leave. And then Beatrice sneaks out and gets home uh, separately. The mom is put forward to work on this bower, which I guess is like this wheeling wheelie thing that Beatrice will enter the ball on, which is just like the <laughs> oddest thing to me, but okay. Um, while they're doing that and discussing this and practicing waltzing and all these things, uh, Beatrice's brother, the Duke, finally <laughs> comes home. Don't be worried about me. Don't send out the search parties. Don't worry, we didn't. Ford tells the Duke, oh, I need to talk to you. And so he's like, okay, come talk to me, but let's let's have a chat. Why don't you come to the ball tonight? Be my guest tonight. And it'll be great. They go up to the billiard room. They're having brandy and talking. And Ford tells the Duke about the embezzling. The Duke's like, well, do you have any proof? And he's like, yes, I can bring it to you. The Duke's like, okay, that's fine. Sounds great. And then he's like, I like you, but if you're toying with my sister's affections, I'll (laughs) cheerfully kill you. (laughs) And Ford blinks. And he's like, the transition from amiable to murderous had been so sudden. (laughs) Again, Ford feels like he's been put in his place. Like, okay, well, the Duke likes me and thinks I'm a good guy, but not good enough for his baby sister. Although, to be fair, is anyone good enough for anyone's baby sister? Exactly. (laughs) It's not a personal attack against you, Ford. Chill. (laughs) And then later, Beatrice is talking to both her brother and Mina her sister-in-law mina asks if beatrice is in love with ford and beatrice is like well there's no use labeling it because nothing can happen he's leaving and mother would never approve and she basically just reasserts like her plan to move back to cornwall when the costume ball happens I think this is Beatrice's final form. You know, she's a Pokemon and she's already evolved, but this is her final evolution here. So her mother has this whole plan that Beatrice is going to be Psyche and she told Mayhew to dress up as Cupid. And she has this whole idea that Beatrice will arrive in this bower and it'll be so majestic and she'll be wearing this gorgeous outfit and, you know, descend gracefully into the arms of her Cupid. And then uh, Mayhew will propose to her and then they'll be able to announce their match. And Beatrice just hates, like, everything about this outfit and everything about everything. And she's talking to her friends about it. And she convinces them to help her change her clothes. And so when they're at the ball and it's time for her to have her big entrance, the bower opens up and she's holding an apple and a book. And she's wearing her more comfortable dress and her spectacles <laughs> her costume is as a wallflower yeah her costume <laughs> is herself because she's she's been in costume this whole time she's finally not in costume yeah i thought it was great ford also thinks it's great he starts clapping which then makes the duke clap and then everyone else claps because the duke is clapping it is acceptable um and then mayhew comes up and is like i was told you were gonna be psyche look i'm your cupid <laughs> and she's like oh that's nice good for you and he's like why don't we take some air and he escorts her out to the 
balcony. He's like, well, I need to have a brief conversation with you. And Beatrice is like, no, no, I don't want this. But agrees to having a brief conversation because she realizes this is the proposal and she's going to have to refuse him at some point. So she might as well just get it over with. And so once they get on the balcony, he proposes. She's just like, I am never going to marry you in a million years. He's like, excuse you? And she says, I know what you did to that barmaid. And I know that she's probably not the only one you've done that to. And you're a messed up person and you're terrible. And so he immediately, you know, flips the switch. He's no longer nice to her. He's like, well, I'd be doing you a favor if we got married and blah, 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 blah. Really, what it comes down to is he needs her dowry because he's poor, because, um, while he has the title, he doesn't have the money. Like many of the aristocracy at the time, I think we're kind of, you know, living the life, but maybe not making the money. Well, they can make money. They just spend it. They don't know how to manage it for various reasons. Yeah, but he he's not going to let her leave the balcony. And then Ford shows up and he's like, nope, you get to leave. Goodbye. And when they, this is basically where the shit hits the fan. Beatrice and Ford have a dance and Beatrice tells Ford that she loves him. And then she's like, I know that you love me. You don't have to say anything. And he agrees. He says that she's right, but he doesn't, he still, he still can't admit it. Like even to himself, not to her, not to himself. So then Ford (laughs) has a conversation with the Duchess and the Duchess is like, here, I'll give you some money and you will go away. And Ford is like, no, I will never take your money. Never, never. But I am going away because I'm going on my ship. (laughs) But that's not because of you. I was planning to do that anyway. (laughs) But there, again, is the whole history repeating itself Uh thing. You know, that's what his grandfather said to his mother. This is what Beatrice's mother is saying to him. Meanwhile, Beatrice is like ready to get it on. She's seeking out Ford to get ravished. She's decided, you know, I'm still living in the moment. I know he's leaving. I still want to experience all this stuff. Yeah, she's on spring break time. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But she notices Ford has left. And so she goes back to, is it back to the bookstore? I think so. I think he was planning to go somewhere, but then she finds him. So I don't think she would have known to look for him anywhere else. So she shows up at the bookstore and she notices that he was leaving. And she's like, why would you leave without saying goodbye? And he says, you know, I want to stay, Beatrice. You also know that I can't. Your mother, your family, this entire society would never approve of a match between us. And he's just worried about her. He's worried about her being affected by scandal. He's worried about her reputation. He's worried about the bookstore, you know, once it turns into the clubhouse, having like this scandal attached to it. Do you think it's really that he's afraid for her or is it just he's scared himself? All of these fears are the ones he's telling himself that he actually feels. But no, I agree with you. He's afraid because he doesn't want to be responsible for for her pain. Just like he was responsible for his mother's pain. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it wasn't him. It was the grandfather. No, he's not responsible, but he apparently just has to, you know, heap that guilt onto his back and carry it around. That's a thing with a lot of heroes, though, is that they feel the responsibility. Oh, yeah, they have to they have to build a ladder so that they can get up on that cross. (laughs) He's a carpenter. He can do it. (laughs) Well, they they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. 
Well, that's what that yoke is for, I guess. But while they're talking, <laughs> guess who shows up? Dun, dun, dun. Jiminy Cricket? Foxton. Oh. And Foxton <laughs> is like, oh, good. Not only can I threaten you guys again, but hmm, you're possibly ruined now. And I could let everyone know. He also drops the bombshell that he knows that he's Ford's grandfather. Yeah, Ford's not really good at keeping secrets or noticing when someone recognizes him. Beatrice is like, is this true? Is he your grandfather? You lied to me. Betrayal. Foxton leaves. He's like, well, here, I'll come back at noon today to hear your decision and I'll return with the papers for you to sign to sell the bookstore. You know, and then he leaves. Foxton thinks he's got a winner here because he can ruin Beatrice's reputation, threaten her. He's got one over on Ford now, or he thinks he does. And Beatrice is is just mostly concerned about Ford's motivation in helping her. Like, was he actually helping her because he wanted to and cared about the stuff that she cared about? Or was he actually helping her for revenge? And why did he lie to her this whole time? Yeah, I know, like, he assures her that revenge wasn't a factor at all, but of course it was. And I don't see why it's wrong to admit that. You can have more than one motivating factor. Yeah, I think he's probably just trying to minimize it, you know? Like, he's just like, well, (laughs) I don't want that to be in her mind at all. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, she runs upstairs... Ford follows her. He tells her everything. He tells her the story of his parents getting together. He tells her about the conversation that he heard his mother have with his grandfather. Is this when he reveals the aunt and the mother meet? He talks about how his mother meets with his aunt in secret once a year. And the grandfather is like a what? And she forgives him pretty quickly. It's not a big deal. I think it's mostly just like she was shocked. I agree. And when he explains it, she's like, oh, well, that makes sense, actually. Okay. (laughs) And then she tells him that she wants to be with him. She starts undressing and she's just like, are you brave enough to be with me? He tells her that he loves her and they, while they're having sex, and it's just so sweet, very cute. Well, I don't know if cute's the right word. Sentimental. Sentimental. Although there is this uh, phrase that just... (laughs) Pleasure building in his bollocks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it's funny. (laughs) You know, authors always use such interesting words for genitals. And I mean, bollocks is, is not very unusual or anything like that. But I don't know. There's just something about that phrase. (laughs) Beatrice is really like this whole thing has changed her. You know, she's she finally feels like she has ownership of of her life, of her body, of everything. She owns herself. And then she goes home and tells her mom that she got ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, mom, guess what? I thought that was a great conversation, too. And the mom at first is like really upset, but then she gets distracted. (laughs) she's like okay well i guess i could hook rafe up with somebody (laughs) but the mom kind of redeems herself a bit uh in this scene because while beatrice is consoling her she's like 
Our family will survive the scandal, Mama. And her mom says, I only wanted life to be easy for you. I wanted you to become a countess so no one could laugh at you anymore. She's she's always been trying to do right by Beatrice, just kind of in the wrong way, I think. Yeah, she wasn't taking Beatrice's wants into consideration. Right. And she's kind of, I think she's come to terms with that at this point. Yeah, I think so too. Meanwhile, Ford has a conversation with his mom and lets her know all the stuff and talk about like his worries like how he couldn't ever hurt Beatrice and all this stuff and his mom's like well are you gonna get married (laughs) 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 and he's like it's complicated and his mom his mom is awesome she's like marrying you would be the greatest prize any girl could hope to win (laughs) (laughs) and she explains to Ford that you know yeah her life wasn't always easy marrying his father but she was happy she is happy because she loves him and it was worth it (laughs) did you not see the happy ford (laughs) any of it yeah (laughs) ford plans to bring his mother and his aunt to talk to beatrice um at the bookstore and so they all meet up at the bookstore and they have this they develop this plan well really it's the ladies that develop this plan um That they'll change Foxton's mind. They'll reconcile him with his estranged daughter and grandson. And he will leave Beatrice alone. (laughs) Oh, and, 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 and Beatrice's friends show up and her brother shows up. Like everyone's there. (laughs) Curtain call. (laughs) I forgot. Everyone's there. So Ford even gets like the blessing from Beatrice's brother too. He's like, please, is this okay? Her brother's like, yeah, I want her to be happy. So if she's happy, then okay. Which is honestly cool. Yeah, that's very nice. (laughs) And then Foxton shows up and he's like, have you finally decided to sign this property to me? And Beatrice is like, nope. No, Fox in the hen house, get out. They kind of all accost him. (laughs) Like Beatrice is like, I know about your childhood. I know that you grew up in a workhouse and that's why you are the way you are. Ford is like... Why can't you have compassion and forgiveness? And then Foxton turns to leave and um, Ford's mom and aunt are standing in the doorway and they're like, hi there. (laughs) You may not leave. You have to talk to us. Yeah, they basically (laughs) care bear stare him. Yeah, they kind of do. And then Ford is like, I need to ask her to marry me now. (laughs) I got the blessing from the brother. I got all the stuff. My mom's happy. You know, I need to I need to ask her now. And so he proposes right then and there. Beatrice is like, <laughs> we're kind of in the middle of something, dude. <laughs> and of course, Beatrice does say yes. Then the sisters get to confront their father. They're like, we forgive you. Ford says he forgives him. Foxen's like, okay, well, I'm leaving it's a really weird scene. I don't know. It's very much like the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day sort of scene. Yeah, I think a lot is going on. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, he's like, okay, fine. Everything's happy. Yeah, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, I think even Beatrice says that they weren't expecting this instant change to him. But I just, 
I don't know. I was sort of disappointed that he just sort of backed down. Yeah, he did. I mean, it is kind of revealed a little bit earlier that he does miss his daughter. He has a portrait that he sometimes pulls out when he thinks no one's looking. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess what it comes down to for me is like that first meeting with the grandfather and Ford. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but there was no indication from the grandfather that he recognized Ford at all. Yeah, at that point he hadn't. And then later when he reveals to Beatrice and Ford that he knows that he's Ford's grandfather. He explains that he figured it out. Yeah, but like, like that's the thing is it didn't have to be told necessarily through Ford's perspective. It could have been told through Beatrice's perspective where it's like, okay, Ford's back was turned and maybe she sees something, but she doesn't understand, you know, the expression on Foxton's face or maybe Ford wonders, does he recognize me? It just, it seemed really sudden, you know, it was just sort of like, well. Yeah, I think you wanted a little bit more, a little bit more from grandpa in the uh, conflict department. Yeah, it was just, it was just sort of like, well, it's the end of the book, so we better wrap this up. <laughs> it's sort of what it felt like. Yeah, kind of. Everything kind of happening all at once and it was just, okay, I guess they all like each other. It's fine. And that's kind of where it ends. I mean, they they have an epilogue a year later where they open the, the ladies' club, which they named Boudicca Club, which I enjoyed. Yes. For the Celtic warrior. The grandfather's even there. So he's like grumpy, but benign at this point. And it just kind of ends there. Didn't they get the properties next to that one too? Yeah, they ended up getting the properties next door as well. So... I don't know. There's a lot of things I liked about this book. Like I really liked um, how the author portrayed Ford's thoughts, his inner dialogue, like him talking to himself mm -hmm. and arguing with himself. I, a lot of times it was very funny to me. I also really enjoyed a lot of Beatrice's dialogue where, you know, she's like telling people what's what. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed a lot of the, a lot of the things I like about um, Regency era books books set in the regency era is the social dance and this book doesn't have a lot of it but the parts that did have it i thought were pretty well done i kind of wish there was more because that's it's fun i like the snide snide comments covered in politeness yes that's always fun <laughs> what did you think about the the writing i think i would have had a different perspective on it if i hadn't done the audiobook, because I think Beverly Crick, who narrated, I think she did a really good job. I think she and I just weren't on the same page. Because like some of the things Beatrice says, I would almost have to re-listen to it in my own head to hear it snarkier. Oh. So is she play Beatrice really straight instead of like with a sarcastic bent? It seemed to me that she played her really earnestly. I, I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think that's probably one of the chief issues I had with getting into the story because she does really play her as this very sheltered, or at least that's sort of what her voice sounded to me like. And Beatrice just seems tougher. Like, I think I would have heard her differently if I had been able to read it myself. I think you probably would have as well, because in my head, Beatrice was very snarky. I really appreciated it. 
I can see how someone might read her earnestly though um which would give her a bit more naivete and while Beatrice I think is you know a sheltered character as many young ladies of the time you know that the story takes place were I mean she's very smart she knows how the game is played she just doesn't want to play it and so I feel like her being snarky at least in her head (laughs) makes a lot more sense yeah there if nowhere else she's fighting back as far as the rest of the writing is concerned, I I really loved the whole etymological dictionary angle and the, the word usage, just in general. Yeah, me too. I think Belle did a really good job. There were several instances through the course of the story where I was like, wow, that's the perfect word for that. Yeah, I agree. You know, or that description is really great. So I really enjoyed that. And I, I know I mentioned it before, but the pacing and sort of the the evolution of events were just a little too slow i guess would be it's not even slow necessarily i just i feel like things really pick up when beatrice inherits the shop yeah totally and honestly i feel like that should have happened within the first chapter <laughs> yeah i don't know about the first chapter but i do like the distinction between like the beginning section of the book where you know she has her life mapped out and this is how things are going to be and this is the way that she'll grasp some semblance of happiness and then once she inherits the bookshop all of a sudden her options are expanded yeah and you have that wizard of oz moment you know she is more empowered ford frankly gets a little more interesting oh yeah a lot of things happen when that moment happens and so i just wish it happened a heck of a lot sooner because i was kind of not entertained until that point (laughs) i think i agree with you i think that a lot of the setup could have happened a little bit more quickly and we still could have had some of the witty conversation between beatrice and ford you know a little bit more of the conflict with beatrice and her mother and have that all still happen a little bit more quickly and then get the bookshop in a little faster. And also maybe some more development with the knitting league. Yeah, I really enjoyed the knitting league, but you're right. It wasn't... I mean, maybe that will happen in other books. But It's a big part of Beatrice's life too, but we don't really get to see a whole lot of it. There's a couple meetings and then of course there's her, you know, the time that she spends with the two friends of hers that are also in the league yeah i mean it's it's the oh we don't really knit nudge nudge wink wink we buy the knit things and donate them you know (laughs) so we're still charitable (laughs) technically but it would have been nice and and interesting to see maybe it get established through the course of the story a little bit and therefore see better how the ladies in the club are helping one another. Yeah, that's another thing because the club pre-exists. Like when the story starts, it's a thing already. Yeah. And it's already established. So it's possible so, that, that this club got established in a different book by the author. You know, I mean, the author has these other trilogies. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know. Also, I mean, it is a very pro-feminine character story, which is absolutely wonderful. And you get this sense of like, sticking it to the patriarchy a bit yeah the presence of the patriarchy is what the grandfather who then they bring into the fold i think it's the mother yeah because the mother has fully bought in yeah that's true and i mean that's the thing though isn't it like oftentimes if you're oppressed you may not even realize it you may just be like 
this is how my life is. And it is. It's old guard and new guard. So it would make sense that the mother would be that representation. Because I think the grandfather is the man more than the patriarchy. True. <laughs> you know, and they they do. They stick it to the man. And then they're like, okay, well, if you want to play nice, you can be with us. And he does. He, he does. He Ebenezer's. There were some really good themes in this book, though. I really liked the prevalent theme of freedom throughout. Um, what is freedom? Mm-hmm. Beatrice's story arc is basically about her discovering how she can be free instead of live in her head. What do you think Ford's is? If hers is freedom, what's what's his battle cry? Oh, that's a good question. I think he wants belonging because he feels he has loving parents, but he holds himself apart. He doesn't want to stay in the same town as his parents he he wants to be on a ship and sail away he's afraid to form a connection with Beatrice you know beyond friendship because he doesn't want to I guess ultimately hurt her hurt himself I think he's worried about causing resentment I think it's more about he doesn't want to yes inflict the pain but that's because inflicting the pain brings him pain because it's back to that he'll be the only survivor And so he probably feels like wherever he goes, so does devastation, whether or not he's the one bringing it per se, or is he just like a devastation magnet? (laughs) We don't know. He is the island, the Omega Man, the lone wolf with the trail of, of bodies behind him, which is, again, seems a bit peculiar with what we know of him. It doesn't quite add up. Yeah, it's not super clear. Either that or he's just exceedingly sensitive. He is pretty sensitive for a hero. He is. So, are you happy for their happy? I think they will be happy. So that's something. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm reasonably satisfied. I wouldn't necessarily say happy, but I think that's about as close as I'm going to get. What about you? Yeah, I was happy they got together. I, I'm a little doubtful at how well it would have actually worked, like if it were in real life yeah if it was a more historically accurate historical romance yeah because like we discussed earlier with the looming threat of scandal that just wasn't really present in this book it was kind of almost laughed off like oh mother whatever (laughs) i think that it's hard for me to feel like it's genuine but at the same time i really liked the characters i liked them together i feel like they earned it so yeah i'm happy for their happy how would you rate them? How would you rate um, Ford? I put, eh, awkward. Awkward? Yeah. I don't know. I just, again, maybe maybe it was the fact that I didn't really connect so much with the story or the narrator or both. You weren't invested? No. I, I don't exactly know why, but yeah, I was completely not invested. Which is un- unfortunate because, like I said, there's plenty that I really enjoyed about it. But for some reason, it just missed the mark. What about you? Oh, for me, uh, Ford, I really liked Ford. I think that that he wasn't especially deep for a character. He was very much a supporting character to Beatrice, I felt. But... But he did support her. I think he was, I think for what he was, he was awesome. I think that he was a good match for Beatrice. I think that he allowed her to be her, which made her feel safe, which allowed her to allow herself to be her. Yeah, he wasn't the bossy guy, which was actually really nice. 
Yeah, and even the times when he was like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You know, she stands up to him and he just, he's like, yeah, well, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm trying to warn you. Which is nice. Yeah, I really appreciated it. It's a lot of times it's, you will do this, which is, ugh. Yeah. So I, I really liked him for a hero. I thought he was great. What about uh, Beatrice? I put her as awesome, but often awkward. <laughs> and I, I, I think that was honestly because of the interpretation. It's like I, I felt like she should be different than how she was coming across. So it just didn't jive. What about you? I think for me, she was awesome. I really liked how she talked to people. Um, I liked how she bargained with her mom. I liked her whole thing. Like, you presume to know what young ladies want. Mm-hmm. She's feisty. I, I liked that. Um, I liked that she's she grew throughout the story. You know, she had a really good character arc. I really enjoyed it. I thought she was awesome. Yay. What about antagonists or villains in the story? The only ones I really had listed were Foxton, who, I don't know, awkward. He wasn't that much of a threat. And the mom for me was like, she kind of got closer to awesome by the end because you see more of her motivations. It's like, I just didn't want you to get laughed at. It's like she thought that that would save her daughter. But her daughter, A, didn't need saving. And B, didn't realize that her daughter was strong enough to where that wasn't gonna affect her negatively not at this point in her life it was a mom problem not a daughter problem exactly what about you and villains or antagonists yeah so i have i have a short list as well um i put millicent on there she's the one who came up with the beastly beatrice nickname i put the earl of mayhew on there he had a lot of potential to be a good villain but it kind of got nipped in the bud I would have liked a bit more of a altercation in the proposal scene or maybe a bit yeah. more backlash from Mayhew. Would you have liked it better if you didn't know that he was a shit um, to where you kind of had to guess? I think so, because I wouldn't have been expecting anything at that point. I think probably if, if I hadn't known he was a shit, <laughs> to use your word. <laughs> I think I I think I wouldn't have had the same expectation and so I wouldn't have felt like as disappointed like it just fizzled out. Um I also put Foxton on there, of course. He's probably the biggest uh external threat that they have that's present in the story, but I feel he's awkward as well because like nothing really happens. It's like he just keeps showing up. He's all, "Yep, I'm a threat." Yep, yep, yep. I'm threatening you. But nothing comes of it. Yeah, that's like with Mayhew too. I'm a threat. Oh, wait, bye. And I considered putting the mom on the list as well. But I actually decided that she wasn't really that much of an antagonist. Because at the point that the story begins, all the damage the mother has done has already been done. And it's really all in Beatrice's head at this point. Yeah, so Beatrice is her own antagonist. Yeah. Because she knows how to handle her mother. She's bargaining with her mother and doing plans and, you know, all this stuff. Like, she's playing her mom's game. I feel like I wanted more from, like, any of the antagonists. Like, I wanted there to be something real, some actual bad thing happen. Yeah. Like, the whole ruining thing could have... I mean, it was sort of attempted with the the maid that Mayhew raped 
like there's that little brief story but if that sort of story had been handled a little differently through the larger story i think that could have raised the stakes yeah where beatrice even though she doesn't care about herself getting ruined if it happened to a friend of hers or if she saw the backlash the societal backlash that didn't hurt her necessarily, but went after her brother, you know, where it's like suddenly he can't have certain business relationships because it, it's, look at that family. Look what they let their daughters do. They let them go have sex. Yeah. How dare they? How dare they? I think that would have helped. I agree. There was no real consequence. There was no real threat. <laughs> it, it's sort of like in... In music, where things have to build to a crescendo, and it just didn't. It's not even, like, for me, it's not even, like, for a crescendo. It's more like you're hearing a song, and it's a song that you really know well, and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it turns into a different song. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. There are songs that do that, that... Yeah. All of a sudden, they do that completely different song change. And most of the time, I don't like it. Because <laughs> I'm like, but but I liked what you were doing before. Why, why is this here? <laughs> so how would you rate the book? I, I fully gave a 0.5 just for words. Okay. Because I enjoyed the words so much. I gave it a 3.5. Oh, that's pretty good. I feel pretty good, all things considered. Yeah, I was a little worried about your rating after <laughs> this conversation we had here. <laughs> There's lots of things that I liked. I mean, I know I was really hard on Ford, but really, in some ways, he was for, you know, the hero character. He was a breath of fresh air in certain regards. Yeah, he was. He didn't necessarily fit in some of those pitfalls. I just, I guess I wish that he had been developed just a little bit more. What about you? What did you rate the book? I rated it a four. Yay! Hey, we're actually pretty close this time. Yeah. And while I agree with you that the beginning was like kind of slow, I found it a really easy read. It was a quick read. I enjoyed reading it. There were plenty of parts that were funny. Um, A lot of witty, witty banter. You know, that's always a plus for me. So did you feel romanced? You know, I kind of did. I wasn't sure how I was going to answer this question, but, you know, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I think that the the combination of Ford and Beatrice is just so good. You know, I think they have good chemistry. They're good for each other. And especially Ford is good for Beatrice. It was good. And I liked the sexy scenes, like, (laughs) because they were playful. Yeah, they were. I liked a lot of that. So it was cool. What about you? Did you feel romanced? No. You never do. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not true. You felt romance last time. Yes. It can happen. <laughs> no, I think the problem is, is I just never, for whatever reason, I just never really connected with the story. And I really thought I would. Maybe that's what it was, is I put undue pressure on the story before I started it. I'm like, hey, it's history. I love history. She's into words. That's awesome. Maybe I put too much pressure on it. What else are you reading? Well, it's not so much reading as it is listening. And it's a play, actually. It's called The Half-Life of Marie Curie. And it's written by Lauren Gunderson, directed by Gay Taylor Upchurch, and performed by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. So I'm not sure if this is historically accurate. However, 
It was entertaining and very engaging. Marie Curie, you know, radiation experimentation, Nobel Prize, and Hertha Ayrton, electrical engineering, uh, mathematician, physicist, they were friends, really good friends. And they go to the beach to allow Marie Curie to recover, recoup from a scandal that she has found herself in, which is she has a lover who is a married man five years younger than her and was an assistant to her husband. Oh my. Yeah. People were apparently really upset and like mobbed her place. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's the two friends kind of talking the situation out, arguing, and it's just, it's splendid. Like you see them supporting each other, not supporting each other. You get to see Marie Curie in a more human way, you know, like as a historical figure, it's like, especially if you ask someone, name a woman scientist, that's the one they can name. (laughs) Right. But anyway, it's, it's really interesting take on friendship. I think it's at least loosely accurate, but as far as the actual dialogue, I have no idea. I don't know if, (laughs) if Gunderson like pulled from any letters or anything, but yeah, it was really powerful. No, it's a bonus because it has uh, Captain Janeway as one of the performers, so. I don't think I know who that is. Star Trek Voyager, Kate Mulgrew, Captain Janeway. Okay. (laughs) I've disappointed you, haven't I? Yes. Don't you realize that I'm a Trekkie? You're supposed to be up on all this stuff. I know you're a Trekkie. I didn't realize I was supposed to be any kind of a Trekkie. You're a Trekkie by association. I know the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, and I feel like that is sufficient. That's the bare minimum. I'm okay with that. (laughs) Okay. Well, I was proud of myself because so often someone will say a performer's name and I'll have no idea who they are. (laughs) Well, yay. So I was feeling very satisfied with my knowledge. I'm so glad I could satisfy you. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of satisfaction, what are you reading? Um, So I haven't started it yet, but remember how I mentioned that there was a trilogy where we meet Beatrice's brother? Yes. I'm going to read the first book of that trilogy, Ah. which isn't about the brother, but it's called What a Difference a Duke Makes, and it's the School for Dukes trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) and it's about a duke who has twins but it doesn't say if he's a widower or not but i'm assuming he is and he hires a governess and it's forbidden love i enjoyed uh lenora bell so i thought i'd give this book a try and maybe uh read this whole trilogy and see how Drew's story is as well. I think you should. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So that's it for this time. Check out our website, romancemepodcast.com for show notes, other episodes, and our upcoming reads. Join us next time when we discuss Mr. Perfect by Linda Howard. Bye! Dude, I was swaying. (laughs) tricky thing with doing the podcast standing is I'm like, there's nowhere to sit so I'm leaning off awkward and fuckersly. Do you think Beatrice would put fuckersly in her dictionary? She should.